Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police homicide file. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for her. Welcome back to the Searching for Closure podcast. It's been a long time since I sat down in front of this microphone. It's been about nine months to be exact. So please forgive me if I'm just a little bit rusty. Running your own podcast is not as easy as it seems. To do this episode, I just spent the past two weeks cleaning up my laptop, just deleting programs and files I don't need and all the garbage that's bogging down my 10-year-old laptop just to try to get it to run fast enough to be able to record audio again. And then I had to dust all the cobwebs off my microphone remember what plug went where and what knob does what on my mixer. And then I had to try to figure out how to mix and level the audio once again so that it sounds good. Oh yeah, I've also been working on designing a whole new website. Which, by the way, if you go to www.searchingforclosure.com and it doesn't load or it asks you for a Google login or... Basically, if it's anything except for like an actual searching for closure website, then all you have to do is delete your cache and reload the web page. Then it should load just fine. If you need help, let me know. I'll see if I can help you in any way. But anyways, let's get on with the show. I want to start out this episode with a thank you. Thank you so much to all the people who have reached out to me with their condolences and their support after the passing of my father. The love and the thoughts and the prayers expressed to me by so many people who don't even really know me and they definitely knew nothing about my dad. Honestly, it it really warms my heart. It tells me exactly how special my listeners are, and how caring you all are. All of you are truly amazing, and I cannot express how much it really means to me. If this is your first episode that you know you decide to listen to, then you may not know this, but last August, I decided to step away from the podcast to spend more quality time with my family after learning that my father had been diagnosed with cancer. It gave me time to do things with him that I've always wanted to do, but I never had the time to do. I had time to have conversations with him that I always wanted to have, but never knew when or how exactly to have them. It gave me time to Put the past to bed and focus on the here and now. As you probably know, cancer, it's a terrible thing. No matter how early you catch it or what type of cancer it is, it just sucks. My dad refused any kind of cancer treatment. 
At the time, my family and I, we were not happy with his decision. We thought that he was just scared and, you know, we figured that he was just in denial. But in retrospect, I understand. You see, my dad always did things his own way. He lived his life the way he wanted to. And he did that in his final days as well. He didn't want to go through all the pain and discomfort of treatment. He wanted to spend his last days in his own home, surrounded by his family who loved him, not in a hospital hooked up to a bunch of machines. So he did that. He stayed in his own home until he finally stopped fighting the disease and he peacefully passed away in his sleep in the early hours of November 13th. Now, after he passed away, I was pretty devastated. To be honest, I was depressed. It took me a long time to work through the grief. All I can say is treat each day as if it's the last day you'll ever have. Never go to bed angry. Don't even say mean things when you're angry. Don't hold grudges. Always tell your loved ones that you love them. Always give them a big hug when you leave. Because you don't know if you'll ever have the chance to do that again. And you don't want to look back with regrets. Reach out to your loved ones on a daily basis. It may not seem like much, but your mom or your dad or your grandparent or child They may just need to know that someone's thinking about them. Just a random text that says, hey, how's it going, can completely change someone's entire day. So after about four months after my dad passed, I started to think about the podcast again, honestly, and I started to miss it. I felt like I had nothing going on. I felt like I just didn't have a purpose. I was just kind of like going through the everyday routine. During that same time, a listener reached out to me asking me to look into two convicted killers that were active around the time of Tina's death. It got the wheels inside my head turning again. It gave me a sense of purpose and a sense of motivation. So I'd like to share with you what I learned. The first person this listener wanted me to look into was named Patrick Arrowwood. In the early morning of August 13, 1979, 19-year-old Heidi Hoffman and 18-year-old Patrick Arrowwood left a local racing bar together. They got into Arrowwood's car and drove off to a park not too far away. One of Arrowwood's friends, who was at the bar that night, followed the two to the park, and couldn't help but notice how completely intoxicated Heidi was. This friend told Patrick that Heidi was obviously drunk, and he instructed Patrick to take Heidi home. It seemed that Patrick was going to do the right thing. He was seen helping Heidi back into the car, which prompted the friend to leave. Everything seemed just fine. But... Since you're listening to a true crime podcast, you know that everything did not turn out just fine. Later that morning, 
Heidi would be found dead, her body floating in the river that divided the park. She died of drowning after she sustained head injuries caused by a vicious and brutal beating. While on trial for the murder, Arrowwood took the stand and he admitted that, yes, he did meet Heidi at the bar and that he, being a gentleman, offered to drive her home since she was in no position to drive. He went on to explain that they went to the park, casually walked around for a while, and after one thing led to another, they were all set to have sex. According to Patrick, as Heidi was undressing, she mentioned that Patrick had a wife. Patrick did not take that too well, and he, quote, told her to knock it off. But Heidi did not knock it off. She kept on talking about it. She kept on going on and on and on until Patrick admitted that he backhanded the young woman across the face. He claims that after he slapped her, she went after him. He claims that she started to hit him in the face and try to claw his eyes out. So, of course, in self-defense, he claims he, quote, hit her some more, and she eventually collapsed to the ground. After that, Patrick continued to be a complete gentleman. He gathered up Heidi's clothes and tossed them off the trail into some bushes and took off back to his car. Heidi, being a woman scorned, got up and began running after him along the path towards his car. He further testified that once he finally got to his car, he discovered that he had lost his car keys during the scuffle. He tried to start his car using a screwdriver, but yeah, that didn't work. So he grabbed a flashlight and headed back along the path to try to find his lost keys. Of course, he never mentioned where Heidi went during his attempts at starting his car, because according to him, you know, she was chasing him back to the car. So, um, I don't know. But while searching for his keys, Patrick claims that he found Heidi floating face down in the river. And of course, being a complete gentleman, he attempted to pull her out of the river and save her. Unfortunately, he was not strong enough. So he did what any man in this situation would do. He ran home to his wife and told her how he found a body. Just like me, the jury was not impressed with Patrick's testimony and found him guilty on both counts of murder and sexual assault. The judge sentenced him to life in prison, plus 30 years. The keys to the guilty plea, besides the fact that his testimony sounded terribly weak, was the bloodstains found on his overalls, his shirt, his shoes. They were all a match to Heidi's blood. Also, remember, he claims that they couldn't have sex because she started to talk about his wife, so he slapped her around. But somehow, they found that a rectal swab taken from Heidi indicated an elevated amount of semen. They also found a large amount of semen in the front of his underwear in a big stain. Aside from all that evidence, they also found Arrowwood's car keys. Where did they find his keys, you ask? Well, his keys were found within three or four feet 
of Heidi's hearing aid, which was near drag marks on the footpath leading to her body. Despite all that, somehow all that evidence didn't really matter because his sexual assault charges were later overturned. In September of 2005, Arrowwood was paroled and released after serving 25 years. He stayed out of trouble for a little bit, but six years later, on May 22nd of 2011, Patrick would be arrested once again after he was discovered in the room of a 14-year-old girl. Luckily, neither the owner nor the girl were home at the time of the break-in but a man who was watching the house saw Arrowwood breaking in. When the house sitter confronted him, Arrowwood attacked him, and the witness fought with him until the police finally arrived. Police found that Patrick's motives were much more devious than just a simple break-in. He had a backpack that was a little bit alarming, to say the least. Inside the backpack was a loaded gun, duct tape, a wooden club, and numerous zip ties, along with other items that could be used for an abduction. Arrowwood pleaded guilty in March of 2012 to felony counts of armed burglary, battery, and possession of a firearm by a felon. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, which should be served consecutively to his life sentence that was reinstated after he broke parole. So the first thing I noticed was that Arrowwood would have only been around 11 or 12 at the time when Tina died. He was born in 1961. That seems a little young to overpower and murder a 15-year-old girl. Even if Tina was very small, which I heard from her friends that she was, I just don't know how easy it would be for a 12-year-old boy to overpower a 15-year-old girl, especially since most girls develop before boys. I mean, I remember when I was 12 years old, a 15-year-old girl was just about an adult to me. But then again, there are some very strong boys and some very timid girls. But even if he was like a complete barbarian and was able to inflict that vicious assault on Tina, I have to wonder if he would have been strong enough to move her body to the shore of Lake Michigan. Remember, police believe that the murder did not take place where she was found. Arrowwood was 18 when he murdered Heidi, and at that age, he couldn't even move a body from a river. You know, when it's floating and easy to move. Of course, that's probably just a lie, and he never tried to remove Heidi from the water at all. But even so, in 2011, at the age of 50, Arrowwood only stood 5'8 and 155 pounds. That's definitely not a big guy. I mean, I'm 6'1 and maybe 190 pounds, and I'm in pretty good shape, if I do say so myself. And... I have to wonder how easily I could carry my wife, who is basically the size of a petite teenager, just completely limp and deadweight, down a steep, rocky embankment in the middle of the night after I stab her 
61 times. I doubt I'd have the arm strength after the complete adrenaline dump of stabbing so many times. Which honestly kind of makes me wonder how many times one person can stab someone before they get tired. I think I'm going to have to investigate that a little further. So the second suspect the listener brought to my attention was better known as a Southside Killer. Now, details on this case are pretty scarce, which is kind of surprising because of how disgusting this case is. I mean, maybe there just wasn't a lot of reporting on it at the time, because back then, the news didn't like sensationalize every single tragedy. There wasn't the 24-7 news cycle that constantly had to try to one-up itself and make every new little detail seem more shocking and amazing. But what I could find, though, was that between 1974 and 1975, police were investigating a murder spree near the south side of Milwaukee. The body of a 20-year-old woman named Susan was found near the Root River about a day and a half after she went missing. Her sweater had been pulled up, exposing her breasts. She was missing her pendant necklace and one of her sandals. Examiners were able to determine that the cause of death had been due to ligature strangulation. The next victim, Wendy, was 15 at the time of her death. She was found in a cornfield about six weeks after she disappeared. Just like Susan, Wendy's shirt had also been pulled up, and her Mickey Mouse watch and a bracelet were missing. Let that sink in for a minute. This 15-year-old girl was wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. That's tragic. Unlike Susan, Wendy's cause of death could not be determined due to the mummification of her body. Next to be found was a 19-year-old named Sherry. This girl was found in a ditch in Racine County five days after she disappeared. Semen was found inside of her and many of her personal items were never recovered. Some of those items were her eyeglasses, an earring, a pendant necklace, a hairbrush, a bottle of perfume, and several forms of identification. A ligature mark, possibly caused by a handcuff, was found on her right wrist. Just like Wendy, her cause of death could not be determined due to mummification. In June of 1976, a woman was driving on a highway near the border of Milwaukee and Racine when she heard a loud voice from the car behind her claiming to be a police officer and ordered her to pull over. When she pulled over, she was confronted by James Multiler, who handcuffed her and forced her into his car at gunpoint. Fortunately, however, she was able to escape and contact the actual police who quickly arrested the creep. After his arrest, a copy of a newspaper article about the incident was sent to the Milwaukee County District Attorney with a handwritten statement at the top reading, quote, This man is a Southside killer. He has raped 36 girls. A handwriting expert was able to determine that the writing was, in fact, done by James, 
and after his arrest, the unsolved disappearances and strangulations stopped, which led police to believe that he was a suspect in four unsolved murders. So, after looking into him just a little bit, I mean, I couldn't find a lot, but what I could find, it seems to me that his M.O. was strangulation, which doesn't really fit with Tina's murder. See, this guy was an extreme, extreme sexual sadist. In 1976, when he was being committed to the Department of Health and Social Services for an examination, he admitted that he, quote, always liked strangling play acting with every girl he had ever known, and that if the girl was conscious, he could not get an erection unless a struggle was involved. He said that he had been engaging in rapes for the past two years because he couldn't get satisfaction out of normal relationships with women. He was diagnosed with having a severe antisocial personality and a moderate, unspecified sexual deviation. Even in 1998, his own 13-year-old daughter stated that for years he had choked and sexually assaulted her. Someone like this guy, who cannot get sexual gratification without strangling and forcing someone into sex, isn't very likely to divert much from that. Almost all of his victims, from what we can tell, were dispatched in the same exact way. Even BTK, who was active for what over 20 years, never really changed his M.O. that much. And he was very similar to James. They both got off on strangulation. But, yeah, BTK was much more into the restraining and the binding and the power. So, if that's what really got James off sexually... There's no real reason for his motives to change. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm 100% convinced that neither one of these men could have murdered Tina. But in my own unprofessional opinion, I highly doubt that they're responsible. But I had not heard about either one of them. And a big thank you for bringing both of them to my attention. I did enjoy looking into them and trying to examine the possibilities. So, after investigating these two cases, it really got me thinking. It got me thinking about mm, starting the podcast up again. But how? And what would I talk about? And what would I investigate? It seems like all the leads have kind of run out in Tina's case. I've not heard anything new from the deputy chief. To me, it seems that they have not tested the DNA, and I highly doubt they will. Racine's crime rate, well, you can Google that. And I'm sure there's much more interest in solving a murder that happened like last weekend, as opposed to a murder that happened in 1973. Plus, from what I hear DNA testing is not cheap, and government funding and resources is just constantly being cut. So I don't fault the police for not wanting to follow up on a tip they got from a podcast, but from what I can tell, the tip I provided is one of the best they've received in decades. Also, I have not heard anything involving Kayla, and honestly, 
I think that case is out of my league. I mean, I'm obviously not a professional. I've stated that numerous times on this podcast. I just report on facts that I'm given and no tips have come in. So you're probably asking yourself now, what case am I going to work on for season three? Well, I reached out to the Facebook group and I asked a simple question. If I was to start podcasting again, what case would you want me to cover? Well, people had several suggestions. One loyal listener suggested that I find a new case here in Wisconsin, so it'll be easier to investigate because it's so close. She also thought that all the listeners were local to where we live. Surprisingly, I have listeners all over the globe. I mean, just doing a quick look, I saw that I had listeners in 20 different states. So hello there, Virginia, West Virginia, Texas, Michigan, Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana, Georgia, Texas, California, Utah, Colorado, Missouri, Washington, Ohio, Iowa, High Florida, North Carolina, Idaho, and New Jersey. But even more surprising was that I have listeners in countries as far away as Montreal, England, Wales, Africa, and even Australia. So I don't want to limit my search to one area. If I centralize myself, I have the chance of isolating other listeners. And what I really want is for as many people as possible to hear about these cases. Because a fresh set of eyes, a fresh set of new eyes, is better than eyes that have already been staring at something without any results. A fresh set of thousands of new eyes can do even more good in my opinion. Which, finally, leads me to my update. At the end of the summer, I will be returning with new episodes. But the real question is, what case will I be covering? See, this is where things are going to get interesting. Recently, I put a poll up on the Searching for Closure Facebook group. There were four options to vote on. One, keep focusing only on Tina. Two, keep focusing only on Kayla. Three, find a new case to focus all my attention on. And four, cover a different case every episode. To be honest, I was pretty surprised with the results. It was a three-way tie. There were equal votes on focusing on Tina's case, finding a new case, and covering a different case every episode. So yeah, that poll didn't really help me at all. But eventually, it gave me an idea. An idea that would appease everyone who voted for all three options. I found a case that is so wide that it will basically be a new case every week, but it will all interlock together into one case. Every case will play into another one. Also, it's during a time period where Tina would come into play. Tina holds a special place in my heart, and this podcast is still dedicated to finding answers in her death, to bring closure to her sister and all her friends. But right now, the tips have dried up. Granted, listeners, you know, they do bring me new tips every now and then. 
but like you already heard in today's episode, two tips didn't really lead to much. And the episode, it's not really all that long. So have no fear. Any tip I receive on Tina, I promise to cover. Same with Kayla, if I get any tips. I will never stop searching. In fact, I recently reached out to Deputy Chief Todd Scholes from the Racing Police Department to do a follow-up to the tip I gave him last year. If you don't remember what that tip was, then go back and listen to the episode entitled Breaking News Regarding Tina Davison. So I called Mr. Scholes around 10 a.m. on a rainy Thursday morning. And just like most of the other times I reached out to him, I got his voicemail. And almost a week later, I have yet to hear back from him. So I got to try to call him again. But when I do, I promise I will let you know everything he has to say. So you might be asking yourself now, or you might have been asking yourself this entire episode, what case is this? Well, I need to leave everyone in a little bit of suspense over the summer break. I know, I know. I've been on break for the past nine months. So why wait any longer? Well, because I'm doing a lot of research. I want this next season to be fluid and coherent. The first season, you know, investigating Tina's case, I just started to wing it. I had no idea where I was going or how I'd get there. Granted, it did provide plenty of shocking results and insight, but it was really hard work just grasping at straws to release a new episode every week. So I plan on spending the summer investigating, sifting through newspaper articles, reading interviews, and doing more Googling than I've ever done before. Once I have episodes written for all the victims involved in this case, I will record them all and release them with follow-ups regarding theories, victimology, profiling, and potential killers. So basically, in the next three months, I need to write 5 to 10 episodes and record them all. That's between 20,000 and 40,000 words that I need to write, and between 10 and 20 hours of audio I need to record and edit. Some people may not realize that to produce one episode a week that's between 20 and 30 minutes of talking, it takes sometimes 30 hours of research alone. In order to make a podcast 20 minutes long, I need to type over 3,000 words. Yes, that's right. Spoiler alert. I am reading a script right now that I wrote. I read a couple negative reviews on iTunes that it said it sounded like I'm reading from a script. Well, that's because I am. I don't want to forget a fact or mess up a date or fudge any numbers. I want all the facts to be accurate and everything to be correct. And I mean, I'm obviously not smart enough to memorize 3,000 words a week to recite into a microphone. So if you don't like me reading what I spent all week writing, then I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. I try to articulate this podcast in a way that reflects the tone of the subject. A lot of that subject is pretty sad and somber. I'm not going to use my 
radio DJ voice or my early morning weatherman voice. I mean, if you'd rather listen to just a couple guys talk about serial killers and make a bunch of awkward jokes about their wives or male pattern baldness, then this podcast probably isn't for you. I try to make this podcast as respectable as possible because the victims I cover in this podcast deserve all the respect in the world. Even if they weren't Mother Teresa or perfect little angels, it doesn't mean they deserve any less. Anyway, I got off on a bit of a tangent there. So, um, where was I? Yes. So after I spend all the time researching, then I need to figure out a structure that is coherent and interesting to the listener. Not to mention recording a half hour podcast can sometimes take up to two hours and the editing alone is very time consuming. I don't want to leave in every hiccup, burp, sniffle, cough, dogs chewing on bones in the background or every time I start stuttering or I stumble over my words. So I edit it to make it sound more appealing. So this isn't something I just Google, copy, paste, record, upload on, you know, an hour. Since I've been away, I've really tried to improve myself. I've gotten a diploma in journalism, a certificate in investigative journalism, and I've recently enrolled in two courses, which I've begun the first one, on an introduction to forensic science and forensic psychology witness investigation. My plan is to use what I've learned in creating a better timeline and presenting more facts. I mean, it's completely fine to work on, you know, theories and examine every option, but you can't just rely on rumors. So having said all that, I'm reaching out to you, the listeners for input. What kind of format do you enjoy listening to? I mean, do you prefer the episodes to be shorter, like 20 minutes, maybe a half hour? Or do you prefer longer episodes that are like, you know, 40 minutes to an hour long? Do you prefer when I had that ambient music in the background of the podcast like I did in the first few episodes? Or do you prefer just hear me talk with no music at all in the background? I know for some people, they find background music really distracting. Are you interested in doing any research? Uh, if you want to help, I'll gladly give you credit. I choose to keep listeners' names off the air to protect their identity. But if anyone wants a shout-out for their work, I'll gladly give it to you. If you don't want to help with any of the research, then you can help in other ways. If you support this podcast, you can show your support by sharing the podcast. Tell all your family and all your friends about it. Share it all over social media. Direct everyone to my website, searchingforclosure.com. The more people you can get to listen, the broader my range will get. And the more people that are listening, the more people will try to figure out what happened and possibly be able to give new tips to the police. Also, please give me a review on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen. I've 
read every review I receive, and most of them are really flattering. So every five-star review I get, the more likely I get new listeners. And I said before, the more listeners I get, the more likely we might see something that everyone else missed. So please, everyone, send me all your thoughts and suggestions. I've never not responded to a message. Either email me at info at searchingforclosure.com or join our Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com slash group slash searchingforclosure. You know, all the links along with photos and news articles and everything else can be found at searchingforclosure.com. Um, it is getting updated every week. If, by the time I release season three, it will be completely good to go. So I'll be back in a few months, probably in August, to let you know exactly when the first episode of season three will be up and exactly what the plan is. Once again, I thank you so much for your support, love, and participation. And I also want to dedicate this episode to my father and just say something to him quickly. You know, even though he can't hear me. Dad, at this stage of my life, looking back, it's clear to me now that you had no idea what you were doing as an adult. And the older I get, the more I understand. Because I don't know what I'm doing either. So I get it. You were always someone I looked up to. And you always supported me. And most importantly, you never judged me. You always stood up for me. You were always there when I needed you. And when I didn't need you, you weren't there. You were just waiting. Waiting for me to need you again. So I dedicate this episode to you. The strongest man I've ever known. The toughest man I've ever known. The most bullheaded and stubborn man I've ever known. You're far from perfect, but you're the perfect father for someone like me. Thank you, Dad. I love you, and I think about you every day. To everyone else, thank you for listening. <laughs>